So like I said earlier, uh, for this session, I'm going to lecture more at you and sort of cast what I hope is, I hope an exciting <laughs> vision of, of what you can do with these practical tools. Um, and I'm going to go a little bit, I'm not going to go full on hardcore theological nerd, but maybe like a little bit theological nerd <laughs> because I teach at a Presbyterian college. Um, so, uh, again, you have a handout for this, and the, there's three main artworks that I'm going to be talking about. So you can see their titles um, on that outline if you want to look them up, um, look them up on your phones. I did make a few for the slides. I, I did make a few um, adjustments for younger eyes. Um, so just if there's something different on your phones than what you're seeing on the screen, that is why. <laughs> okay. Um, so this talk, um, I am thinking about the prophetic imagination, clear-eyed criticism, and energizing hope. So when we're young, we are often taught to link imagination with the impossible, right? Imagine a glass slipper. Imagine a fire-breathing dragon. Imagine a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then at some point, we're essentially told to stop imagining. So instead of imagining yourself as a world-class footballer in the Premier League, you take a counting one in college. <laughs> and so for many of us, imagination and fantasy have become synonymous. And problems develop when we struggle to maintain a proper relationship between fantasy and reality, and especially when we begin to favor fantasy over reality. But I think that this definition of, or understanding of imagination is bereft of imagination. Because I think a better definition, really the dictionary definition for imagination is this. The faculty of forming new ideas or images or concepts of things not currently present to the senses. So imagination is conjuring something that is not currently present to the senses. And under this definition, imagination, conjuring what we cannot see before our eyes, is actually imperative for the Christian, right? Our lives as Christians are built on what we cannot see, what we cannot empirically measure, that we are enfleshed souls, that the antithesis of the fall runs through us, that Christ has come to redeem us, that Christ will come again to restore us. These are all things that we cannot see that are not apprehendable by our senses, but that we believe to be true. And there's a number of Christian thinkers who have written pretty extensively on the Christian imagination. So today, for this second talk in our time together, I, I just want to sketch a vision of how art both made in the service to Christianity and made by non-Christians, might enlarge and enliven our Christian imaginations. And I'm going to do this by using something that the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann calls the prophetic imagination. His, in his book, The Prophetic Imagination, Brueggemann describes Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and then Jesus as uttering prophetic words that do two things that offer both clear-eyed truth-telling and energizing hope. Okay, clear-eyed truth-telling and energizing hope as these two facets of the prophetic imagination. 
And I want to suggest that for us, as viewers who are soaked in the gospel story, we can actually see art in this doubly prophetic way. Art can help us imagine things as they really are, not just how they seem to be. And art can help us imagine with hope how things will someday be. And to sort of link this back to our last session, both of these results can help us grow in our love for God and our neighbor. Okay? So, our first artwork. Around 1513, the monks of the monastery of St. Anthony in Isenheim, France, commissioned Matthias Grunewald and Nicholas Hagenau to create a large altarpiece for their hospital chapel. This multi-panel altarpiece has several configurations, but most often it looks like this. Most often it looks like this closed view, okay? Um, the outer wings, the, on the far panels, we have St. Sebastian pierced with arrows, and then St. Anthony on the right-hand side who is calmly ignoring a demon that is trying to swirl around his head. And then in the large central panel against a black sky, we see a crucifixion scene. There's a wooden cross that bisects the composition, extending up to the top edge of the panel. To the left, we have John the Apostle supporting a swooning, deathly pale Mary. And then that's Mary Magdalene with her hair unbound and a jar of perfume at her feet, who's kneeling at the foot of the cross, hands clasped in petition. Then to the right of the cross, we have John the Baptist, who's identified by his shaggy beard and a camel skin robe and his bare feet. And he's holding a book open in one hand, and the other is pointing to the cross. And there's this red text sort of emitting from his mouth. And it says, he must increase, I must decrease. And then at John's feet, we have a lamb who's holding a tiny cross in the crook of the leg, just in case you were confused and weren't sure what a lamb was doing there. It has a cross to let you know. And it is calmly allowing blood to gush from its chest into a golden goblet below. We're not, we're not being super subtle here. Okay. Every figure, here's my visual analysis, every figure in the altarpiece is directing their attention to Christ on the cross. Do you see that? How the implied lines of everybody's line of sight is all focusing back on Christ. And so we, too, cannot look away. The details are gruesome. Jesus' skin is green and pockmarked. It's riddled with thorns. His arms seem to pull from their sockets, sinew visible beneath the skin. His fingers splay and torque from the pain of nails driven through palms. His feet twist unnaturally, almost melting into each other. His head lolls heavy, mouth open, eyes closed, lips this really sickly green. And bright red blood drips from his hands, his side, and his feet. And that crimson hue is also what unifies the painting. It's the same color as Sebastian's robes, John the Apostle's robe, John the Baptist's robe, St. Anthony's robe, and it's echoed in that paler hue of Mary Magdalene's dress. Now, as a document, as an illustration of the historical crucifixion of Jesus, Grunewald's painting is not good. <laughs> Grunewald splices together an impossible scene. This is a time-traveling patchwork, right? Because Sebastian was martyred in the 3rd century, and St. Anthony lived in the 13th century. And yes, Mary and John the Apostle and Mary Magdalene bore witness to the crucifixion, but John the Baptist was very dead when this happened, right? But here's the thing. 
Grunewald is not trying to assist viewers in imagining the crucifixion as a first century AD occurrence. Instead, he is trying to help viewers better imagine what the crucifixion truly is, what the crucifixion means theologically, right? This is a realist painting in the sense that it tells us the truth about the effects and extent of the fall that Jesus is coming back to undo. So the crucifixion is not some bland, bloodless affair, nor is it merely a one-time historical event. Now, the altarpiece, as I mentioned, was made for a monastery hospital. The monks at St. Anthony's were especially well-known for their care for those who had skin diseases, especially ergotism, which was um, a disease that you got from eating infected wheat. And the particular excruciating details of Christ's skin would have been intimately familiar to anybody with ergotism. Um, this was their skin. This is Christ mirroring their bodies back to them, bearing not only their sin, but also all of their physical suffering. Those who bear witness to Christ also then bear witness to the hospital's patients. John the Baptist reminds them that God keeps his promises, that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come, and that in their decrease, Christ will increase. And the crimson trickles of blood expand into garments that literally cover the figures who bear witness at the cross. In a sense, they're not just dressed in red robes, but in the blood of the lamb that was slain. None of this makes sense as a depiction of visible reality. But what could be seen on the day of crucifixion was really just a shadow of what was actually happening at the crucifixion, right? And for those who are called children of God, we are folded in in some mysterious way to this event that ripples out in time and utterly changes history. So in its historical inaccuracy, the Isenheim altarpiece is a more accurate representation of the crucifixion. God incarnate, humiliated, broken, and in pain meets with these hospital worshipers whose bodies are likewise pockmarked and putrid. There is no quick jump to glory, no pretty gloss. It is an undoing. And in this, Grunewald invokes the prophetic imagination of clear-eyed criticism. He makes sure that we understand in our gut the awfulness of both Christ's death and the patient's suffering. But what does this look like for an artwork that's not made by a Christian, that's not made for the purposes of the church? I want to argue that as Christian viewers, we can also imagine prophetically with artworks not meant for the church. Like Jeremiah conducting a metaphorical funeral for Israel, the contemporary artist Carrie Mae Weems names the insidious history of racial injustice in the United States. And she does so not by telling, but by showing. So what we're looking at now, imagine that you are in a gallery looking at a photographic installation. From here, I saw what happened, and I cried. It's a syncopated row of 33 framed photographs that line the wall. And these are not photographs that Carrie Mae Weems herself has taken. Instead of making new photographs, she gathers and repurposes existing photographs of black bodies. So she starts 
and ends the series with an early 20th century anthropological photograph of a Mangbetu woman photographed in profile, her chin sort of jutting out to balance this amazing crown of braids on her head. But Weems also alters the historical image because instead of being a cool grayscale or sepia tone, the photograph is now blue. The woman's skin becomes a rich navy in the shadows with pale gray-blue highlights, and text written in an all-caps font is actually etched into the museum glass, and it floats just above the image. And so the words begin, from here I saw what happened. The text continues across the next 31 images, some of which may be familiar from history textbooks, PBS specials, museum exhibitions, all of them are tinted a brilliant crimson and framed by circular black mats. And as we walk down the row of photographs, the hovering words weave this poetic narrative of black marginalization and suffering, as well as resistance, complicity, and struggle. We reach the end. The final image is a mirror of the first, the Mengbetu woman now faces to the left, gazing back over those blood red images in between and over the darkness of her shadowed shoulder, we read, and I cried. There are numerous ways that we can approach Weems's work. I've spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about this one. But what I want to do today, right now, is consider how her work is functioning as clear-eyed critique that leads to lament. Now we do need to understand this installation as a whole, but let's focus initially on one panel. This is the 13th circular photograph, and we see a seated black man facing away from us, but his head is turned in profile. He's shirtless, we can see the crisscrossed network of scars across his back, and the text on the glass reads, black and tanned, your whipped wind of change howled low, blowing itself, ha, smack into the middle of Ellington's orchestra. Billy heard it too and cried strange fruit tears. So here, Weems is appropriating, she's borrowing the well-known photograph, The Scourged Back, also known as Gordon. This is a photograph of a formerly enslaved man that was distributed by abolitionists to rally support at a critical moment in the Civil War. But Weems's alterations to the image call attention to all the things that we actually can't see in it. Can you see that? Because the photograph is tinted blood red, right? So the sort of cool objectivity or nostalgia that we might have with black and white photographs goes away and it's replaced with this highly charged emotional color. It feels like we could even be looking at this photograph through a pool of blood. Second, Weems presents all the photographs in these circular mats, which provides a telescopic effect where we can't see the edges of the thing. We are implicitly distanced from the images and made aware of the fact that our access to them is anything but direct. And then third, Weems's text refuses to stay confined below the image where we'd usually expect to see text, right, as a caption. And instead of being a caption, now the, the text is floating in front of the image and we can't read the text without seeing the image and we can't access the image without the text getting in the way. The form of the work itself, even before we've interpreted the text, both arrests our attention and it blocks our gaze. 
our seemingly natural practices of looking at historical photographs all fail us when we are approaching this set of images. And this disruption is what allows us to make meaning. Weems uses our disorientation to name the violence experienced by African Americans in this country, both during and after the era of chattel slavery. The text accompanying Gordon's photograph connects his abuse to the lynchings of black men and women in the 20th century that Billie Holiday described with horrifically evocative metaphor, right, in, in her cover, Strange Fruit. Our standard practices of deflection and downplaying falter in the face of Weems's poetic confrontation. So it may seem at first that Weems is just gonna give us a simple good guy, bad guy history of America. And in that standard narrative, um, African Americans were unjustly abused by white Americans and the viewers should feel righteous, inspiring anger towards the wrongdoers. But here's what I find really shocking and beautiful is that Weems does something else instead. Further into her photographic series, she sort of makes this pivot. We find ourselves party. We find ourselves complicit in black women's objectification. We're looking at a photograph again that she's borrowed from the past of a nude black woman sort of splayed out for the viewer. And the text reads, you became playmate to the patriarch. The subsequent photograph of a 19th century black woman pressing her cheek against her young white charge extends the previous accusation and their daughter. And then a 1957 photograph of the African-American performer Josephine Baker, heavily made up with lightened skin, sitting alone on a chair, her eyes down, hands clasped in her lap. You became an accomplice. Now, in isolation, the combination of text and image might sound accusatory or even self-righteous. But in the context of the work as a whole, we hesitate. How can we understand the complex psychological realities that these women inhabited, the choices they made for their seeming survival? This isn't a simple history of moral triumph over oppression. The brokenness spirals out in all directions. And in this way, Weems is similar to how Brueggemann describes the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah's audience was living in numb denial. They didn't believe that things were as bad as they actually were. And his task then was to publicly express those very fears and terrors that had been denied so long and suppressed so deeply that people didn't even know that they were there. Jeremiah is disruptive in naming what most do not want to see. But the point is not simply to complain. The point is that the prophet then leads the people to lament. And this is what Weems does. Towards the end of the installation, the text shifts from describing the actions of the photographic subjects themselves. Instead of becoming different things, her subjects now do something. The final two crimson images read, Restless after the longest winter, you marched and marched and marched. In your sing-song prayer, you asked, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? And then with that question sort of hanging in the air, we move to the final panel of the installation, the Mangbetu woman looking back over everything we've just seen together, and she offers a response to what we should do next. And I cried. 
this is so generous too, because this is written in the first person. And so regardless of your racial or ethnic identity, if you are reading along with this, Weems puts you as the viewer in the position of doing the weeping at the end, right? She, she lays it right out in front of you. This is what you do next, you weep. And weeping might seem like a strange or even anti-intellectual response to art um, or to historical narrative. But this is precisely what Christians are called to do in response to the kinds of injustices described by Weems in her work. Lament is a means of giving voice to oppression, anxiety, pain, and peril, appealing to a relationship with God for an expectation, with an expectation of deliverance. When the people of Israel publicly mourn the violence they've experienced, their grief is an expression of their faith in a God who they know will hear and will answer, even if they don't know what form that's going to take. So Karamee Weems may not confess Jesus as Lord, but as active viewers with eyes of faith, we can redirect Weems' weeping and add our own voices to the God who hears. Now, Remember, prophetic imagination is a twofold envisioning. You have the clear-eyed, straight-talking, truth-telling of the Isenheim altarpiece, and Weems's from here I saw what happened and I cried. But that's just part of the equation, because the prophet also brings invigorating, energizing hope, casting a vision of reality that seems beyond possibility. And by that, I don't mean Disneyland. Right? Like we, when we say, like, what is something that you can't even imagine to be true? It's not Disneyland. <laughs> Brueggemann describes the language of hope differently. He says that hope is an inversion of the present numbness or despair by evoking amazement at the newness that is possible with God. Let me read that again. It's so good. Hope is an inversion of the present numbness or despair by evoking amazement at the newness that is possible with God. The first time that I saw this next painting, I had that experience of amazement. I had just finished walking through, not this gallery, but a gallery sort of like it, a string of galleries filled with abstract expressionist work. These are big monumental canvases filled to the edges with loops of paint or clouds of paint sort of soaking into the canvas, vertical zips, blurry fields, everything is non-representational. All of them are stretched taut on invisible wooden frames and they hang flat like you would expect a painting to do against a wall. And then I walked into the next room and I saw Sam, Sam Gilliam's work. This is in the National Gallery, but not right now. Sad. Um, Relative didn't hang on the wall. It danced. Yards of canvas stained with clouds of pink and violet and turquoise are gathered into four evenly spaced peaks, each one tied or knotted tightly. The canvas folds and swoops between each peak, the leftmost swath pinched together as if invisible hands have sort of gathered it up and lifted a swaying skirt. From left to right, the warm hues fade, then transition to deeper violets and blues. There's a blotch of green-blue that sort of seeps out like an ink stain or a nebula. And across the canvas, occasional splatters of hot red coral, bright yellow or leaf green sort of slice through these hazy fields. 
if the canvas was stretched, it would resemble all those other abstract expressionist paintings in the previous gallery. But it's not, and that's the whole point. It's important to understand something of this work's context. Sam Gilliam emerged as a painter in the 1960s in Washington, DC. Guys, I've written this all for you, okay? While New York painters and critics dominated the post-war American art scene, Gilliam was working from the margins, both as a black man and outside of a major art center. His draped canvases fundamentally challenged the new status quo that was being heralded as the future of modern American art. And here's a quick recap on what's happening in modern American art at that time. There's this guy. He's Clement Greenberg, and he championed the works of folks like Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, Morris Lewis, among others. Greenberg saw their work as being representative of new modern American painting. And some of the things he liked about their work was that it was individualistic, that every painter had their own distinct style, and that their work was self-critical that these modern American painters were setting out to purify painting. They were trying to get rid of narrative. They were trying to get rid of illusion. They just wanted to make painting that was totally abstract, that was completely non-representational. And according to them, had, quote, no politics whatsoever. That was a lie. It also embraced and emphasized the flatness of the canvas as the characteristic unique to painting. Okay, so what makes modern painting, modern painting is that it's flat. Okay? Rather than trying to create stories or, um, or tell stories or create illusions, modernist painting wanted to be pure, it wanted to be autonomous, and it very much wanted to be flat, making no reference to the world beyond its edges. And this also meant that the viewer was supposed to come to the work as a kind of blank slate yourself. So if you looked at this Morris Lewis painting and thought, I see peacock feathers, you were not allowing for the work's autonomy and independence. You weren't supposed to bring your archive with you. That's how they were talking about modern painting in 1950s and 60s America. Okay? And the guy who's sort of running the show here, Clement Greenberg, exerted tremendous influence when it came to the development and narration of post-war American art. The artists he championed were purchased by major museums. They formed the core collection of modern art museums around the country. So perhaps now you can see just how much of a rupture Sam Gilliam's relative is in this context, right? The accepted status quo was that in order to be of the moment, painting could only do one thing. Gilliam knew these other artists. He was familiar with the art that was being made in New York. Um, and his early work in the 1960s, early in the 1960s, bears marks of their influence. But right around 1963, Gilliam's work takes a turn. And rather than painting an idea of abstraction in a void, Gilliam turns to the personal. He told an interviewer that things he saw in his own environment in DC um, as an art teacher, such as clotheslines filled with clothes with so much weight that they had to be propped up became the launching point for a new way of painting. And so through the 60s and into the 70s, Gilliam painted and draped canvases, sometimes on the wall like this one, sometimes actually hanging them out in space like these, um, suspending them from the ceiling. 
his paintings swish and they tumble and they billow and they float. Anything but adhere like pieces of paper to flat walls. These, this um, image I'm showing you here is actually two Sam Gilliam paintings that are being installed together as a new single unit called Double Merge. And it activates an entire room in this factory turned art gallery space. It looks like sheets hung out to dry, perpetually caught in the wind, swelling and pulling with unseen energy. Gilliam's paintings are not merely critiques or deconstructions of Greenberg's modernist dogma. They offer something new. Do you see that? A tantalizing what if that we can be amazed by. Greenberg wanted painting to be autonomous, but Gilliam's don't pretend to be. They invite comparisons to tents, to clotheslines, to blankets, to curtains, to dresses. Greenberg wanted painting to be insistently flat. Gilliam's are insistently not flat. Greenberg wanted painting to be neutral, utterly absent of politics. But many of Gilliam's paintings reference or grow out of political protest against the war in Vietnam or civil rights injustices experienced by African Americans. When Brueggemann describes the prophetic work of hope, he writes that it is, quote, not dismantling, but the inauguration of a new thing. Hope is not dismantling, but the inauguration of a new thing. And isn't that the work of Jesus? that he's not just dismantling, but he's ushering in something new. Prophetic imagination enables the people to envision something new, something previously curtailed by the powers that be. And Gilliam takes exactly the same materials and even the same abstract visual language of his contemporaries, and he makes something new. It's not that he simply suggests a new way of painting, a new way that painting can look. He proposes a new way that painting can be, a new way that painting can do. Like Weems, Gilliam is not making art from a position of belief as a Christian, nor is he making art for a specifically Christian community. But I'm asking us as viewers who do believe to follow Gilliam's claims to the only end that ultimately makes sense, the work of Christ that cuts through the stifling status quo of despair with dynamic hope. Because rooted in Christ, secure in his story of gospel love and restoration, we can recognize echoes of a prophetic imagination wherever they might be. Submitting to the particularities of the artworks, we can learn new ways to see, to envision both grief and possibility. So I want to end by returning to the Isenheim altarpiece. Because I showed you one view of it, but I would be remiss to not talk to you about another one of its configurations. Most of the time, if you were a worshiper in the chapel, this is what you would see. But on certain feast days, including Easter, the wings of the altarpiece would open and a new scene revealed. Now the leftmost panel depicts the Annunciation, the central panel is a choir of angels um, and the Nativity, and then the rightmost panel is the resurrection. I love this detail. Light is shooting out of the wounds in Christ's hands and feet and side. His green skin is now alabaster. His sores are smoothed away, but the wounds, the scars in his hands, feet, and side emit golden light. And he levitates above his tomb in a seeming fireball while soldiers tumble and scatter in disarray and fear. 
he is inaugurating something new. Can you imagine with me the experience of Isenheim Hospital patients? Imagine that for weeks, months even, you've come to this chapel daily to pray. And every time you see the green, gaunt, twisted visage of a suffering savior, and his flesh is your flesh, he is intimately familiar with your oozing, pocked, blistered skin, your delirious pain, your spasms, your vomiting, your headaches, your incessant itching. Grunewald offers you a prophetic vision of how bad things really are. Grunewald lets you acknowledge the pain. You are not making it up. You haven't imagined it. You may have tried to numb yourself to it as a way of coping, but it's real. And then today, Easter Sunday, you walk into that familiar chapel, and instead of the dying Christ, you see this. He is risen indeed. His body is restored. The marks of his suffering on your behalf are still present, but now they are places of honor. And if the suffering servant is resurrected and made whole, then can you imagine him doing the same for you? Can you have that generative hope of inaugurating something new? Oh, isn't that amazing? I love this piece so much. Our Christian imagination, our prophetic imagination, calls us to radical faith, to see clearly the brokenness of our now and the promise of our future. And artists, even those who don't claim the name of Christ, can help us grapple with the unseeable in manifold productive ways. Carrie Mae Weems addresses the often hidden history and present reality of racial trauma in America. While others might try to downplay or bypass grief, she literally calls us to tears. And then meanwhile, Sam Gilliam takes canvas and paint and reimagines painting apart from the authoritative voices of the art world. They both offer us something new, not for the sake of novelty, but as dispelling false belief. What more can be done than what we have already seen, have already been told must be our limit? And then, of course, Grunewald's Isenheim altarpiece speaks this double prophetic language even more explicitly. Grunewald helps us imagine with our bodies our bones aching as we look upon the word made flesh and dwelling among us in all our sorrow. But we are also given the energizing hope of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus made possible a future for the disinherited, writes Brueggemann. And indeed, our startling confrontation with the resurrected Christ shakes us into a new reality. Friends, art is not a sacrament. Art is not prophecy. Art is not gospel. But art can and does remind us of the richness of the world that we inhabit and the richness of the world that we cannot see both in its sorrow and in its promised restoration. Thank you. So we have some time for questions. We can talk about the first session or the second session. Um, but any questions that you guys have or anything that you want to return to and think about a little bit more? Or I'll just keep talking to you about the Isenheim altarpiece because I just love that one so much. <laughs>
-hmm. I mean, this is gonna work with like anything in the National Gallery, right? You guys, you have so much to choose from. Um, I, I'm trying to think about what all is there. So something I've enjoyed doing with um, even younger students is, is going and looking first at abstract paintings and practicing visual analysis on those because you're less likely to get tripped up on the narrative or on the subject matter and you pay a little bit more attention to just the visual thing that's in front of you. Um, so I've, I, I, I might suggest starting with that um, and then actually moving to the more familiar representational artworks. Um, the great thing about the National Gallery is that it, it does give you a lot of information in those little side panels. Um, but I, I might encourage you before you read the side panel to do spend your time with the object first and sort of see what you can see before you try to jump straight to what it's telling you or to its context. So those would be some suggestions. Yeah. I'm going to the National Gallery on Monday because I don't know what's up anymore. <laughs> but I will let you know. Anything else? I just threw like so much at you guys. We're just gonna see what sticks later. Oh. No, <laughs> I can't. Um, I love this carrying. I mean, everything I talked about. Today, I love that Carrie Mae Weems work. It's been really. I love it because it has been so transformative for me. Um, from here I saw what happened and I cried has functioned as a kind of liturgy for me in my own grief and grappling. Um, I, when Michael Brown was killed, that was the artwork, that artwork made sense to me in a new way. And I found myself returning to it time and time again um, at these different moments of, of crises and sort of allowing Carrie Mae Weems to carve a path for my own tears and prayers to follow. Um, so that work has been really transformative for me. Um, and then the, the artwork that I close um, my book with is called Shibboleth. Pastor Irwin talks about it in his book, Beautiful Community. It's the crack in the floor of the museum. Um, and I love that one too, but you'll have to, you could just read his book for why I like it so much. But you could also read my book for why I like it so much. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. What are other ways that we're being informed by how we consume images? Um, so, so two things. One is, um, and I'm a, I'm, I like Instagram more than Twitter because I like pictures more than I like shouting. Um, so, <laughs> that's that's my preference. Um, but something that is dangerous about Instagram is that as just a feed like this, you can have your friend's vacation photo from Cabo right next to a photograph of an earthquake victim from Turkey, like one after another, and they are presented in exactly the same format, and you are not ready <laughs> to deal with that, to, to deal with an image of trauma um, right next to an image of like an ice cream cone. 
you know. Um, and so something that I have actually done is I've um, stopped following most news organizations in my Instagram feed because I would rather go when I'm when it is time for me to read about my world I would rather be like in the mindset for doing that and not have it sort of like mixed in with cute baby photos you know um, because I think I think that that equalizing is really dangerous for us um, I think another thing is uh, I just finished this great book by David Zoll called Low Anthropology. Um, he, he talks about uh, some similar things that my colleague Kelly Capic talks about in his book, um, You're Only Human, but just our finitude. Um, and I've, I've worked really hard at trying to make looking at other people's Instagram a practice of gratitude. So rather than assuming that somebody's Instagram life is their real life, I just assume that it's their highlight reel. Like, that probably they are just as messed up and stressed out and, like, behind on laundry as I am. But I don't need them to share all of that. I'm just going to assume that that's the case. And I'm going to be super happy that they had a nice date night. Or I'm going to be super grateful that they had that sweet moment with their kids. Because I know that probably, like, two hours ago they were screaming at each other, you know? And, and so for me, like, that kind of mental shift of seeing Instagram not as reality but as, like, celebratory um, has been really helpful for um, – well, for thinking about what I post, but also thinking about how I consume other people's images. So those are two practical things that I've, I've learned to do. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, that's a great question. There's, there's, there's a neuroscience answer to that. So, so the question is, how do images affect our archive differently than things that we read? And there's a neuroscience answer to that that I could limp my way through, but not effectively. Um, so this is my intuitive <laughs> version of it. Um, when images are working on us, not on the level of propositions, not on the level of logic and rationality and let me provide evidence for a claim that I've made the way that text does. Um, images get inside of us in a different kind of way, um, in part because they're drawing from all these other things that we have seen, um, in part because they, uh, even though we're just seeing something, they animate more of our senses, right? That, uh, like somebody was saying, like he could, he could hear that painting, right? Um, or maybe you can smell something that you, when you see a beautiful photograph of food, you, can, you feel like you can smell it, or you can taste it. So there, I think there is something that's more, um, there's something happening a little bit below the surface when we look at images um, than when we are engaging with text. And I have found, um, there was, a, actually I've been thinking a lot about this work recently following the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, there was a, a huge earthquake in the Sichuan province of China in 2008, and um, hundreds of thousands of people died. Many of them were children in schools that collapsed. And I read about that in the news, and I was sad, and I donated money. And I also have no imagination for what 85,000 people actually means. Okay. A few years later, um, the, the dissident political artist Ai Weiwei, who had gone to the Sichuan province with a team of, uh, with a team of studio assistants, 
they had gathered the bent rebar from the city and taken it back to his studio. And they spent four years straightening the rebar back out and then installed it as this sculptural installation that's just piles of rebar that now is straight, but that was twisted. And it sort of looks like this topographical map. And then on the wall behind it, they have a spreadsheet that lists all of the names of victims with their, and, and that was all in Chinese, so I couldn't read that, but the birth dates were written so that I could see the years in which people were born. And I, you, could, you felt it in your gut. Oh, it's a lot of children. And the heaviness of the material, the heaviness of the actual thing itself, it's to reinforce the floor of the museum before they installed it. Um, it, it, hit, it hit me in a different way, the, the literal weight of that loss, um, in a way that reading about the tragedy just didn't do for me. So I think there is something about that like fullness um, that, that gets inside of us in a different kind of way. Mm -hmm. And that work is called Straight by Ai Weiwei, if you want to look it up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So the question is, um, are Christian artists, should Christian artists always incorporate hope in sort of an evident way in their work? Um, my colleague really likes to ask poor high school students who are applying to Covenant, do you believe Christians can make bitter art? Um, which is like too big of a thing to ask 17 year olds, um, <laughs> honestly. But <laughs> um, I, I don't think that Christians are somehow required to have some clear evidence of hope in every single thing that they make. I would rather us be able to think about an artistic practice as a, a lifelong practice, as an arc. Um, I might be concerned if all you were ever doing was making sad art that is thinking about the fall. Um, and yet, you know, like, look at the prophets. They had a lot where they were just sad a lot of the time. Um, and I think that there is, um, there is something that can be untruthful if we uh, want to skip straight to the, the hopefulness part without acknowledging the bigness of the brokenness that we're in. And so something that I often tell my students, because I, I teach a lot of art history that is about sad stuff, right? Um, I, if I had a podcast, it would be Dr. Whitefoot Ruins Everything, because you, you think that that's a beautiful painting, and I'm like, well, wait until I tell you what's really going on. Um, but I tell them that the, the more that they know the extent of the brokenness, the bigger Jesus has to be to undo it, right? Um, and so I, I think that, that for a Christian maker living into that calling, there's lots of space for saying, this is the brokenness. I'm, I'm, I am announcing that in faith that Jesus is going to make it untrue. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, guys. This was really fun for me to be able to do this with you.